So my question tonight, and this is at the end of 14 weeks of really talking about the same kind of stuff. My question is, where are you at? If you've been here for most of these conversations, particularly if you have resonated with what's going on in Gomer's life, Hosea's wife, Jonah's life, as they have this thing inside of them that perpetually bends them away from God and they turn. Or I could put the question this way if you weren't here, you'll still resonate with it. What do you do when you feel far from God or dry or like you don't know where he is or you don't know who he is or you don't know what he's like? What do you do when maybe you sing a song we sang, I think, last week, Come Thou Fount, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone, prone, prone to leave, leave, leave the God I love. What do you do? What should you do? What can you do? That's what Hosea 14 is in our Bibles to answer. Because it's written to people who feel stuck, who feel far, who wonder, have I done this thing enough times that there is no hope for me? Or have I neglected this thing enough times that there's no hope for me? That the promises of God are awesome, the gospel sounds great, Christianity sounds great, but there's no way it could possibly be true for me if I'm really honest about what's going on inside of me. Well, you're in luck because Hosea 14 is in our Bible. And I want you to hear a simple answer also from that hymn, Come Thou Fount. The next line after this confession of my heart is prone to wander, Lord, I feel that it's prone to leave the God that I love. The prayer is, here is my heart, O take and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. That's about as succinct a summary of chapter 14 of Hosea that you get. We are prone to wander and we need God to take our hearts and seal them, and change them, and bend them in a new direction towards him. I want to go through three things that are in this passage. And again, my goal and my prayer tonight is that this would be a simple epilogue to a long semester. There's three things that God really says to answer that question. What should you do if you resonate with this, if you believe him, that you're also prone to leave, prone to run, prone to prefer life apart from God, life according to your own way, if that's you, what do you do? God says, first, return to me. And he says, when you come to me, bring words, bring confession. Then he says, when you do this, I will heal you. I will heal you. Come to me. Come with words, and I'll heal you. The first thing he says is, return to me. That's, that's verse 1. He says, return to me, the Lord your God, O Israel. Come back to me. And this word turn is actually the thread that's tied the whole story of Hosea together. All 14 chapters, this long, tragic saga of this man, this prophet, who's called to go out and marry a promiscuous woman or a woman with a heart bent away from her husband prone to flirt, prone to have a wandering eye, prone to leave him, prone to just be a roommate when she's home with him, but to light up and to be thrilled with every other lover, anybody but him. First chapter, God talks about Israel turning away from him. He talks about Gomer turning away from Hosea. He talks about us and our hearts turning away from him. 
So almost every other time in this book, when the word turn is used, it's in a negative, tragic, terrible sense that we've talked about multiple times, this thing inside of us that bends us away from God. But here, here it's used in the opposite sense, return or turn again. And so there's this ironic sense in which the same thing that led us away from God and leads you and I away from God is the very thing he calls us to do to begin to move back towards him is to turn. You think about why did we turn in the first place? Usually it's something like this. We hear a faint whisper or there's a glimmer of something beautiful and attractive to us. When the scale reads 140, you will be beautiful and you will be wanted and you will be okay. When you get the 3.8, your future unrolls like a red carpet and you get whatever you ask for. And you'll be the one in your family that has financial security. When you get a position in leadership in this club or this church or in RUF, finally I'll be on the inside. People will respect me and I'll be secure. I'll be safe. Those little things, we catch whispers of them like someone calling your name in a crowd and it gets our attention. And then we begin to pay attention. We give up things to listen to that voice. And, you know, if you've ever kind of paid attention to a distraction in a crowd and then you look up and you're lost and you're like, I don't even know where I am anymore. Well, God is saying that's how we first begin to take steps away from him. And the way you first begin to take steps back towards him is to turn and to pay attention and to listen. Now, some of you, I've talked to you. This series, Hosea and Jonah, has really got up in your business and God's doing some amazing stuff in you. And you know he's calling you. You feel it. You perceive it somehow. Or just by faith, you know that this is for you. This is crossing where you're at in life right now. For some of you, you're going to have to take God's word for it. And I'm going to ask you to question, is your hearing more reliable or God's voice? Because there's a possibility that you've gone deaf and that you can't hear him calling. But Edie just read it and I just read it. What he says to you here is return. Come home. Call home. Come back. And so even through my voice, he is audibly speaking to you now through his word to come back to him, irrespective of your background. Whether you think this applies to you or not, he's calling you to come back. Some of you perceive it, some of us do not, and we have to take God's word for it, or I'm going to ask you to consider taking his word for it. Who is it that God is calling back to him. Who is he calling? He says, sinners. That's what he says in the passage. I'm calling sinners back to me. And we need to define this word again. We say it a lot. Hunter alluded to it in his prayer. And you might be thinking, wow, they really overdo it with this sin stuff. That's so 1800. Don't we have better terms for this now, like psychosis or mental health stuff or whatever else it is? But sin is the word that most accurately describes what is wrong with me and what is wrong with you. It was actually the Bible's description of what is wrong with people, men and women, deeply inside of us, what bends us away from each other, what makes us selfish, what makes us feel distant from God. That was actually one of the most compelling things I ever found in the Bible. And I'm like, this has to be true. I have never read anything else in psychology or counseling or history, or sociology, or any spirituality kind of thing that describes me the way I know myself to be. It is true to form. It is true to reality. 
It puts words to things I've struggled to put words to. It gives me a way of thinking and seeing what is really going on inside of me. What does it mean to sin? It means to prefer to be far from God. It means to suspect him. It means to love to do the things that we do. We sin because we want to. We sin because we desire to. We sin because we see it as a more optimal outcome. And of course, it's bigger than us too. We've talked about that plenty of weeks. We're victims of sin too. It's done to us. We're victims of sin in a huge way. But at the end of the day, we sin because we want to. And God is calling sinners back to himself who sin because they prefer to sin. That's the kind of people he's calling back to himself. And it's important that we grasp this. Because if you don't, there will come a day when you wonder if you get into the Bible or you come around church or you hear the Bible taught where you'll begin to wonder, is there any way possible that he would ever have any interest in me or any hope for me or any change for me or any grace for me? Well, he's saying the people who have hope, the people that he calls to himself are those that he names and labels sinners, people who are bent away from him and bent away from each other. And it gets a little bit more specific than that because he says in verse two, it is, uh, or sorry, the second part of verse one, sinners who have been brought down for your sins have brought you down. What does he mean by this? He means that we are victims of our own foolishness. And I know you feel this because this kind of stuff leads to most of the self-hatred we feel inside. Most of the reasons you don't like yourself is because you realize you're a co-conspirator in your own downfall, right? It's some of your worst habits that just frustrates the fool out of you because you know, if I would just get up earlier, this problem would go away. If I would just study more, this problem would go away. If I would just get over this and move on, the problem would go away. And so we, we heap abuse and hatred and, and, and violence upon ourselves because we know that we're in on it. We know that we've become the victims of our own sin. Our sin has brought us down. It's brought us down into the dirt. It's brought us down into the mud. And deep down inside, we all feel like the soccer player who every single game has an own goal. He scores on his own team. She scores on her own team and just bears the shame of that. And the rest of the game, you're in your head. <laughs> so you keep doing it. Does this resonate with you? This is my story. This is my life. God says he is calling to himself sinners who have been brought down or brought low by their sin. Other places in the Bible that talk about sin bringing us down low means it tangles us up. Hebrews, sin that so closely entangles, so, so closely lies at hand, it entangles us. Genesis talks about sin as a lion waiting by your door to pounce on you and devour you. Paul talks about it in Romans 7 as this force or power bigger than you that's always there waiting, even when you want to do good, even when you most want to follow God, that's luring you away. We're trapped people, we're stuck people, we're tangled up people, we're desperate people, we're confused people. And a lot of us are angry people because we don't know what's going on. Again, I want to ask you the question, why is it important to know this? Why is it important to know this? I talk to y'all. We talk about this stuff. We get into each other's lives, and I know so many of you are like me, and you trudge through life with that existential agony inside of you of, I could, I could 
I could preach the best sermon ever. I could tell anybody about God's compassion and his patience and his mercy, but I feel zero of it for myself. There is no hope for me because what I keep doing, what I keep falling into, and we really do feel that there's no grace for us. And so we live with a graceless tyrant of a God who is indifferent to our suffering, who looks at our own scoring on ourselves all the time and just laughs and says, man, if you just learned your techniques better, you wouldn't do that. And this is how a lot of us live our lives. And so the gospel becomes the worst news ever, not the best news ever. And I want to wrestle with you. I want to wrestle with your doubts. This passage wants to wrestle with you. Do you really think you're worse off than Gomer? If you haven't been here the past few weeks, go read the rest of Hosea. Do you, are you really saying that you are worse off, more wayward than Gomer? Are you really saying that you're more evil than Israel was? These were the people of God in all the earth. They were God's billboard to the rest of the world. This is what a grace-transformed person looks like. And men were going to the temples of Baal to have sex with cult prostitutes as kind of a spiritual seance to try to bring fertility to their crops. And you're saying you're worse than that? They would sacrifice their babies. The blood of their children was spilled to try to secure rainfall for the next year's crop and the money that it would bring. And you're saying you're worse than that. Israel is kind of unhinged. It's in death spiral. Gomer's life is in death spiral. Jonah's life from before spring break was in a death spiral. Are you really saying you run harder, faster, longer than Jonah? Because Jonah, Gomer, Israel, and you are the people that God is still talking to, still engaging with you, still addressing you, still saying, come home, come back, come to me. You've got to join me in the fight of wrestling against your own suspicions and thinking that you're worse than anybody else. Part of the reason these people have been preserved and their stories preserved in Scripture is to wrestle with you and to say, hey, come join the party as it were. We are all a big group of profoundly evil, broken, wayward people. That in you does not make you different from the rest of people. It makes you similar. And these are the people that God says he saves. Here's the joy that this brings to us. Martin Luther said, so when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell the devil this. I admit it that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who has suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf and his name is Jesus Christ, son of God. And where he is, I shall be also. And it doesn't just bring us hope, but it brings you great emotional ballast. On the days when you don't feel lovable, you don't feel loved by God, you don't feel his presence. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity says this, The great thing to remember is that though your feelings come and go, God's love for you does not. It is not wearied by our sins, our indifference, and therefore it is quite relentless in its determination that we will be cured of those sins at whatever cost to us and at whatever cost to him. What kind of person does God call? Specifically, sinners who've been a mess of their past, their present, and are probably going to make a little bit of a mess of their tomorrows. That's who God calls. That's who he welcomes. That's who he's still talking to. That's who he is still interested in. Do you fit that diagnosis? Who is God calling us to return to? 
He says, return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for your sins have brought you down. Bring your confessions and return to the Lord. Say to him. Repentance. Coming back to God, responding to that voice. That call. Wooing you back home. Is movement back towards a person, not to obedience, not to discipline, not to trying harder, not to the habits and the accountability systems you used to have set up. God calls you to himself, not to a lifestyle or behaviors or whatever else. He first and foremost says, come to me. Jesus says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, not come to spiritual techniques, not come to self-discipline strategies. Not, not coming to trying to be a better Christian. Come to me. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I am the door. I am the great shepherd. I am the king. I am the great physician. Do you, do you hear that? That God calls you to himself. Not to, not to Christianity. Not to some other lifestyle you used to have back in high school when you were really involved in your youth group. He says, no, 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 no. Push that aside. I'm talking to you. You come to me. That is who he is calling us to. Brian Habig is a pastor that I love. He gets through to me. He speaks to my heart every time. He was very helpful for me on this passage. He tells the story of a friend of his who uh, had a few kids like, like I do. Kids dramatically disrupt your ordinary life if you haven't realized that yet. So this guy, <coughs> this dad, uh, after he has his first kid, he adjusts his schedule a little bit to be home a little bit earlier, to stay around in the morning a little bit later, to be with his son and his wife and to help out. Has another kid a few years later. Makes a few adjustments, but it kind of always goes back to the default of workaholism. He's always at the office. He's always coming home late. I'm sorry. I know I said I'd be home at five, but the boss asked me to do so and so. So their first son grows up a few years. He's about three years old, and he's hitting these terrible threes. He's acting out. He's melting down. He's not obeying. He's not listening. It's just like daily battle with mom and dad between this three-year-old and his parents. Finally, one day, mom and dad get so exasperated at bedtime, they put their little boy on their bed, and they say, what do you want? What is it? And with unimaginable clarity and honesty, their little three-year-old boy looks at his dad and he says, I want you. And he looks at his mom and he says, I want you. Have you ever heard God say he wants you? What you would expect a three-year-old to say is what Alex and I were talking about earlier. Our favorite breakfast cereals, Lucky Charms, Cinnamon Toast Crunch, Honey Smacks. That's what I want from mom and dad. I want another show of Ninjago. I want to stay up later. I want a heavier Easter basket. This three-year-old knows what it's all about. He says, I want you, dad. Mom, you want to know what I most want? You is what I want. God is not calling you back to all the things you think he might be calling you to return to. He is calling you to come back to him. And he's saying, I want you. This is deeply, deeply personal when we see <coughs> what he is doing. He says, not just return, turn again. Make one more turn, one more pivot. You pivoted away from me. You turned away from me. You saw these glimmers. You heard these voices. 
you've realized it has not brought you the life, the security, the control, the hope that you thought it would. Pivot again. Turn back. Listen to my voice. And he doesn't just say turn. He says, turn to me. But he says next, when you turn, when you come back to me, come with words. That's the literal Hebrew here. Take words with you. Bring words with you, verse 2. Here it says, bring your confessions and return to the Lord. Say to him. He says, when you come to me, come with honesty. Come so we can finally have the conversation. What conversation? The conversation. Get what I'm saying? The one you've needed to be having with him for months or years or your whole life. The elephant in the room. I don't love you. I'm not a good person. I'm not, in a secular sense, I might be a great person. Love your neighbor. Don't do harm to your fellow man or woman. Yeah, I haven't violated or transgressed those laws, but I am always out for myself. I don't care about my friends. I want, their ador- I want their attention. I want their praise. I want to be their best friend. I don't love school for the sake of learning and intellectual growth and serving my neighbor. I want it because it's going to get me somewhere else. Come with honesty. Come finally talking about what we should always have been talking about to begin with. This honest confession. Don't come, he says, with excuses with rationalities, um, with, with self-denial, with defensiveness, with, but you don't understand, the only reason that happened is because this happened. Don't come with formalities. Don't come with cliches. Don't come with shallow diagnosis. Don't come with promises to do better. Don't come with rededications or recommitments or resolutions. Come and talk to God about what you know you need to talk to him about. Come out of your closet, come out of the darkness, come out of the hiding, come out of the marketing spin and put words to what is true and say it. This is what Israel is portrayed as doing in this passage, second part of two through three. They say to him or God says, this is what you can say to me. Are you stuck? Do you not know even how to pray anymore? What am I supposed to say to God? You're talking about go to him. What does go to him mean? What am I supposed to do? Oh, he loves you so much. He's given you a script. He's not opposed to you coming to him. He said, hey, writer's block, here's your prayer. Forgive all my sins, Lord, and graciously receive me. I I don't feel like you'll receive me, but let me and receive me. Let me come near so that I may offer you our praises. Assyria cannot save us. Georgia football cannot save us, nor can our war horses, nor can my GPA, nor can my health. Nor can my personality, nor can my witty humor that gets me all the attention I could ever want. Nor could my body image, nor could my weight. Never again will I say to the idols that I myself have set up, that I myself have made. You are my God. No, in you alone do the fatherless find mercy. Do the orphans find mercy. That is the conversation that God wants to have with you whether you have never known him before or whether you were doing this for the 4,000th time. This is what repentance is. It is the conversation. <clears throat> Look, I'm just like y'all. I'm not beating up on you. I'm telling you what I heard in myself all through my life and what I hear in you. A lot of times we'll sit down together and something is on your chest you want to get off. And sometimes people will say stuff like, 
me and my girlfriend or me and my boyfriend, we messed up. We got a little too physical. And I used to just sit there and be like, I kind of don't want to hear many details of that. We'll just talk about that. But, but then I'm like, I got to ask some follow-ups because you need to say the words. Because we messed up is not a confession. It is spin. It is self-righteousness. We crossed boundaries is lying. It is not honesty. It is spinning. It is posturing. It is pretense. And I know that for James to come true, confess your sins to one another, that you might be healed. To confess your sins to God, that you might be healed. It must be true. Not a press conference where you've sat there and doctored this thing for two days. How can we phrase this better? But you say, Father, this is what I did. I, I love this. I, I think you are so boring. The thought of what you call sexual purity and integrity to me sounds like the worst life ever. I believe you're after me. I don't believe you're for me. That's why I did this. And this is what I did. And I wanted to do it. We didn't accidentally fall into it. That is a confession. That's the conversation when I say the conversation. Until you're willing to have that conversation, you're not going to get very far at all. Just as you would if you sinned against a friend, you did something terrible to your mom or your dad, and you go back to them and say, I'm sorry, I was just, I didn't get much sleep that night. And they're like, okay, but did you hear what you said to me? Until you address it, until you call it what it is and name it for what it is and put it all on the table, we really haven't done anything at all except to continue our running, to continue strong-arming God while going through the motions. We're doing the Christian dance. And we wonder why we still feel like marble. And we wonder why God still feels so far away. Have we ever even been interacting with him? Or have we been atoning for our own guilty conscience? I'm with you in this, but we have to name these things. In, uh, a confession is not informing God of something he doesn't know. You get that. But it is restoring. It is a seeking restoration of relationship. Frederick Buechner, it's not up there, but I'll read it to you. Frederick Buechner says, To confess your sins to God is not to tell God anything that he doesn't already know. But until you confess your sins, however, they are an abyss between you and God. When you confess them, your confessions become the Golden Gate Bridge. Isn't that amazing? The very thing that you thought you couldn't verbalize, you couldn't say, you couldn't talk about, it was taboo, unspeakable, that which shall not be named. When you begin to talk about it, it becomes the Golden Gate Bridge. And God, in a sense, is finally, finally, to coin a phrase, you're putting your cards on the table. Finally, we're being honest. Finally, you're walking in the light. Finally, you are trusting me with what's actually true of you. Finally, you've given up trying to atone for your sins as your own Messiah. Finally, you're coming to me in need and asking for a Messiah. We'll work with that. We'll work with that. Second in the Notre Dame Cathedral, going up in smoke the other day as the whole world watched this 800-year-old masterpiece burn down. Confession is when you say, I lit it on fire. I did it. 
I caused the damage. I hurt all these people. I destroyed something so beautiful. Confession names what has happened regardless of the cost, and it actually begins the healing process. And God is not a God who, when you confess, says, hey, I told you so. Didn't you know better? He's a God who says he helps you understand what happened to begin with. I wanted to share something, um, not to be gratuitous, but this true in my life just this last night. I have for so long been telling myself I'm too busy. I don't have enough margin in my life. Three kids. I get home and I'm still on. Anna's been on all day long. And I get home from this and three beautiful little kids run across the floor and say, Dada. And so we're wrestling and we're playing and we're giving baths and we're giving dinner and we're giving spanking sometimes. And We're putting them down to sleep, which is like a 45-minute process. And we just sit on the couch after, and I'm done. And I so miss the days when I got to go downtown and read and think and pray and write. I don't do that anymore. And for so long, friends, I have told myself, I just don't have time. And I have felt my heart grow colder and colder. And sometimes more and more cynical and more and more detached from what is really true of my God. Last night, my knees buckled. Um, here is a little backstory on what I love to worship, and I think it's something that some of you might love to worship too. This is from a, from a lady named Jen Michelle. She wrote this in Christianity Today. She sang, One of the most seductive promises of a technological age like ours is that our lives should be an unbothered life. As our lives get easier, we're increasingly formed by the desire for ease. Of all the cautions we raise about technology, its distractions, temptations, loneliness, superficiality, this promise of unencumbered living is perhaps the most insidious danger and also the one we talk the least about. She goes on to apply it to relationships, to love. What does this preference for the path of least resistance, for an unencumbered life, for an unbothered life, what does it do to our relationship? She says, in theory, I want to love, but in reality, I want it to tax me less. That was my confession last night to God, finally naming what I always knew to be true. I prefer an unbothered life, and love takes work. And relationships require effort. And they require thought, and they require self-examination. And even reminding yourself of the goodness of the gospel, the music of, of, of the gospel requires work. You have to say no to whatever emotions you're experiencing in the moment and say yes to what can feel like a totally uninspired message. And that bothers me and it encumbers me. And I just, I want the path of least resistance. And Netflix is usually the path of least resistance. And last night, God was kind enough to give me words to finally be honest about what was always going on. And because I was working on this passage, I knew that he would receive me graciously and say, Ben, thank you. We can work with that. We can't work with all the stuff you were working on before. He finally brought me to my knees to actually come to him and tell them, Lord, I don't love you the most. I love ease the most. I want it the most. Would you grant me repentance? Would you change my heart? Would you get inside of me and make me want you more and make me love you more? I do love you, but I want to love you more. That's what confession looks like in real life. I want to invite you to ask yourself, what conversation do you need to have tonight? I know finals are coming up. I know term papers are among us.
What conversation do you need to have tonight that you've been avoiding your whole life or this whole semester? Your cynicism, can you put that word to it? Can you talk to God about how you see yourself as better than everybody else, better than him, better than the church? Can you talk finally about your triviality with the things of God that you really don't care about all this stuff you hear every Wednesday night, every Sunday morning, you're here for the friendships? Can you finally begin to verbalize that and say, I am desperate, I am stuck, I am tangled, I need your help? Can you finally begin to put words to sexual temptations? When you do, the Lord says in verse 4, he promises you something and he says, take this to the bank, pin it on your wall, try me. The Lord says, then I will heal you of your faithlessness. The word there is apostasy, which is this deeply embedded inner desire to just be far from God. He says, that thing, that's what I'll heal. That's what I'll touch. That's what I'll change. And that's how you change. He says, my love will know no bounds and my anger will be gone forever. And I want to ask you as I continue to read the end of this, do you want this for yourself? Christian or not, do you want this? I will be to my people like a refreshing dew from heaven. You will blossom like the lily, finally. I will send roots deep into the soil. It will send roots deep into the soil like the cedars of Lebanon. Its branches will spread out like beautiful olive trees, as fragrant as the cedars of Lebanon. My people again will live under my shade. They'll flourish. They'll blossom like grapevines. They will be as fragrant as the wines of Lebanon. I am the one who answers your prayers and cares for you. I am where your fruit comes from. That is what God promises. We don't have to nuance that. We don't have to say, well, actually, in reality, it's not really that way because it's hard. No, he says, can we finally be honest? Will you finally say, I need this God, this Savior, a friend of sinners, the one who came for the ungodly, the one who loves the unrighteous, the one who came to repetitively, day after day, hour after hour, shower mercy on the man and the woman who knows his or her need of it. He says he will do this. And what he is saying here, and I end with this, is not just that he'll give you your life back. He's saying he'll give you him back. Some of you have had God. If you're a Christian, you have him forever. You are united to him. You are married to him. Nothing will separate you from his love. But there is plenty of things that will separate you from the perception of his love, the sense of his love, right? The sense of his presence. That's what you get back immediately is to get to abide with your father and to know that he's for you and to know that he loves you. That sense of his presence, of his goodness, of his favor towards you. That you can bring all that you're dealing with to him. But the gospel also gives you your world back and it decenters you. Last night, UGA baseball went 20 innings, a UGA record. Some of y'all were there for the first seven or ten. Two of y'all were there for all 20. Lily and Caroline, you get some kind of award. Justin Clement was over at my house this morning. He was telling me about that game. He was there for the first part. And he said, you know, about midnight, someone at the stadium put out the word to all their buddies. You've got to get to Foley Field right now. We're playing Clemson. We're tied. It's like 18 innings in. It's one o'clock in the morning. Get over here. 
all these guys in this fraternity and all these other people from around campus get the call, show up at Foley, get behind home plate and heckle the you-know-what out of Clemson and cheer our team on. The coach said afterward, it was the most amazing thing I've experienced. Don't you want to be about something bigger than you? When you have the opportunity to be about something bigger than you and your fleeting desires and your little interests and your idols, it'll get you out of bed at night. It'll get you out of bed in the morning. Teams do it all the time. When Atlanta United wins, when the Bulldogs win, when the Arab Spring happens and freedom is within reach for them, when Osama bin Laden receives justice, people flood out into the streets in the middle of the night because finally their life is about something bigger than them. What you get back, friends, is not just God and not just the grace of God and not just the benefits of knowing him. You get your life back. You get the world back. And you get the freedom of being about something bigger than yourself. This is what Jesus Christ went to the cross to accomplish on your behalf. You will not pay for this. You will not earn it. God has paid for it for you. And he has given it to you freely. And it's yours for the taking. And it's a real offer. And it's a real gift. Will you pick it up if you've never picked it up before? Will you pick it up again if you already know him? Let's pray. Jesus, 14 chapters. Four chapters of Jonah. An anatomy of what is true about us and all the darkness and all the running. An anatomy about what is true about you and all the patience and all the pursuing and all the compassion and all the mercy and all the just telling it like it is. My friends, I think, are just like me. We've gone a long time without talking to you. And we have become co-conspirators, victims in our own struggles. We pray that you would free us from this.